Hello, fellow Nostriches. Welcome to the Nostra Talks podcast. I'm your host, DK. We've been having a lot of discussions about Nostra on my YouTube channel, Curious DK, but we've had lots of requests to also share the audio in a traditional podcast feed. So this is our official kickoff of Nostra Talks as a proper audio podcast. But you can still always watch the video on the YouTube channel if you prefer that. And what better way to kick this off than with a beginner's episode where I share Nostra with a tech builder friend of mine who doesn't know much about it yet. I invited David Notchum to record this session with me. He's a longtime builder in big tech with a decade of experience building products such as Gmail at Google, messaging at Apple, and search and messaging at Facebook Meta. He's incredibly savvy on products and technologies and very open to learning about Nostr, but I specifically asked him to come with no preparation so we could discuss Nostr from the ground up and hear his real-time reactions as a tech-informed thinker, but as a Nostr noob. I had fun catching up and sharing my enthusiasm for Nostr and hearing where David had hesitations and where he sees promise for the technology. I think it helps me to challenge my own positions and strengthen my ability to share this story with smart newcomers. I hope you learned something from hearing our conversation. The reason I was thinking it would be fun to get together and talk about this is, you know, obviously I've been spending a lot of time learning about Noster and, and, and you know, clients like Domus and, and using it every day. I've been making these education things about it. And there's a lot of builders in my network who are asking about it and specifically people who've spent a lot of time building social networking tools of one form or another, kind of in that zero to one mm-hmm. startup phase. And... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kind of just to to set up who you are for people who are, are just coming to learn about you. Um, we met about a year ago, and you know, I would describe your background as like deeply um, experienced in kind of the big tech kind of engineering product management ecosystem. But then you're out on your own now, doing zero to one social as a startup thing, and so it's a I think a unique perspective to have both the big tech experience as well as trying to do zero to one social stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. And so I think that's kind of, you know, in a sense you're playing in this space of zero to one social. And I was actually just talking the other day at a tweet and a bunch of people have been reaching out about it, but I kind of said like centralized social networking is basically done unless, uh, unless a tool is going to have a deep AI connection. And then I think there's still opportunities in centralized social networking. But those may also eventually give way to this kind of new gravity of of decentralized social networking and Noster, you know, kind of stuff that Noster enables. So that's a little bit of the setup. Does that does that sort of your expectation kind of ready to jam on that? Yeah, yeah. And I I would also add I I spent a few years working on Gmail, which mm-hmm. is kind of a proprietary tool built on top of a open protocol. Yeah. Um, and sometimes sometimes we ran into things we wanted to do that would have been easier if we were not open. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, email being open also has, has huge benefits. Um, well, actually, can, I think, can we talk a little bit about that? Because I think, yeah. you, know, you know, SMTP as a protocol is kind of foundational to email. And a lot of people are concerned that even though it's built on an open protocol over time, are these centralizing forces, you know, Gmail being one, um, you know, probably Hotmail, Yahoo Mail, and di- you know, different exchange servers and stuff. So, you know, I wonder, like, it sounds like you, despite um, sort of it being an open protocol and working on a centralized version of it, you were still cautious about introducing things that may had have further centralization concerns. Is that is that what you're talking about? Well, definitely, there were people I 
Google, who were big believers in open protocols and didn't want to do proprietary things um, that kind of prevented interop with other clients. Um, I'm saying there were things that, from a product perspective, we wanted to do in Gmail that mm. were made much more difficult by the fact that it was an open protocol. And, you know, like some people access Gmail through an Apple Mail client or through a web client or mm-hmm. uh, something else, Thunderbird from Mozilla. Um, and we had to then figure out, like, how do we make these proprietary Google Gmail things work in all of those clients? And it actually made things much more difficult for us as a product team mm-hmm. in those instances than if we had been something completely closed, like uh, Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp or something like that. Um, so I've, I've, I've done some thinking on some of these topics. Um, and I'm, I wouldn't, I would not say I'm strongly in one, in, in the pro open or pro closed camp. I think it ends up kind of playing out differently in different areas. Right. Um, but it's interesting. Yeah. Do do you think that email, you know, as an originally very open thing that has now these centralization points, do you think it's kind of in a, relative equilibrium for how the openness versus closeness you know aspects of that will work or do you see some maybe big changes that may be on the horizon you know given things like the way you know the importance of messaging relative to any kind of closed and proprietary messaging compared to um you know email do you see trends that you think are going to shape the future to be either more open email or more closed email or maybe just email becomes less important or more important or sort of how does how do you think that plays out i don't think email will change that much from where it is today um in terms of open versus closed i think even back in 2012 when i when i began working on gmail there was this vibe that um you know the iphone had come out and android had come out and sms had gotten rigged and now there were these proprietary messaging clients, whether it be iMessage on Apple or WhatsApp kind of internationally uh, on Android and and on iPhone. Um, And that kind of that was what the cool kids were doing. And that was cannibalizing email. And but that in a way is kind of a new medium. And and it played out the way it played out for, for a bunch of interesting reasons that are, are kind of separate from email um but it's but it is interesting to look at that as well like why didn't sms or mms or these open standards kind of really win in the messaging world um and i think i mean if you were really pro closed if i'm if i'm gonna play your devil's advocate in this conversation um you might say that they were able to innovate in in these over the top messaging or whatever you want to call them these proprietary closed messaging systems um, were able to move much more quickly on doing all kinds of things that SMS and the open messaging standards took much longer to do, whether it's group messaging or or supporting photos and multimedia or read receipts or um, all kinds of other things, right? Um, And um, with with the open standards, you get these consortiums that uh, that kind of have to agree on things and right. lots of, like all the all the different device manufacturers and carriers and all of that have to all align on things and that takes a very long time. There was actually there was some interview that Sundar Pichai did because Google 
had the Google over time was trying to introduce an open standard for messaging that would sort of compete with iMessage, but across the entire Android ecosystem, uh, RCS, uh, I, I think that was the one that he said this about. And I think he even said in the interview, you know, it's likely United Nations, so it's going to mm. take a little bit of time. Right. Um, yep. Uh, and um, and like that didn't end up happening. Like with in the email world, it ended up being the open protocol that won. And like that, that might be kind of an interesting intellectual topic of like mm-hmm. why did the open approach win in one round and the closed approach won in the next round. Right. Um, and and maybe that has uh, yeah yeah I mean that's I, I'm not sure if we want to rat hole in that topic actually yeah um, I, I'm curious about something you said because you mentioned SMS as being kind of open and I always think of it as being kind of closed with a lot of carrier interop kind of negotiated carrier interop and kind of exchange and mm-hmm. and I'm not an expert at sort of the SMS ecosystem but at least sort of as a you know kind of relatively informed but not expert kind of spectator I would say. I would have characterized SMS as being mostly closed and requiring a lot of agreement to carry messages from one carrier to another. Is that not sort of the way you look at it? Because I think you were hearkening to it being maybe a bit more of an open thing. Um, so yeah, the, the definition of open is, <laughs> is another interesting question. Um, and actually, that's something I found a lot at Google. Because um, Google, the employees had us the kind of temperament and the culture and stuff was very pro open mm-hmm. and Google did lots of things that were open, but open meant different things right. in different contexts. They were like open standards and open source and open platforms and yep. all these different things. And like, and it, and in, in each case, like open either did or didn't win. Um, and it was right. kind of more of a strategic question. Um, so on the SMS question, I don't think I have much more ex- expertise than you do, except what I mean by open in, in defining it is just that it was not owned by one company. I see. It was not, like right. it was a standard in theory that these different uh, device manufacturers and carriers in all these different countries could all kind of uh, align around, right? Right. Um, right. Which is which is quite different. I I don't know much about Nostra, but I know that Nostra is different in that sense. Yeah. Um. But yeah. So uh, so, so maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, did you have something else on the... No, go ahead. Go ahead. So I was going to say, maybe that's a, a good point to kind of set up the Noster stuff and kind of frame it a little bit. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's something that I've been spending a lot of time in, and I call myself a Noster student, not a Noster expert. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm hoping that I can kind of learn more about it and help new people, people who are new to the ecosystem, learn about it too. So, um, you know, in this conversation, we'll assume that you're like a very informed technical engineering product person uh, with both, you know, big tech and startup experience and kind of a, you know, concern around open versus closed systems. So something you know about, care about, but we'll assume that you're starting from zero on Noster. I don't know if that's entirely true or if it's like close to true, but it's close to true. I've seen a few of your videos and that's about as much as I know. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, um, so I, I was thinking maybe I could set up at least you know, some of the core, the basics of what I get excited about. And then mm-hmm. we could use that kind of that basics as a way for maybe you could probe, hey, I have these questions, or I don't know that I agree with that. Or can you give more detail on that? We can see how far I can go uh, in explaining w- what I do understand about it. Uh, and then, uh, you know, kind of see see what that generates. Is that a good? Yeah, sounds great. 
So I, I think about Noster um, as like a new architecture for publishing information on the web. And, you know, different people have different definitions. And, um, you know, I think it's sort of fast evolving. But, you know, to sort of back it up, if you think about how a typical interaction of publishing on the web works, there's like the DNS system that routes a request to a front end that's going to, you know, generate content, but it often needs to look into a database to generate that content. And so the architecture of the web that's emerged is basically you start with a web browser, you make a request, it hits DNS, that hits a front end. The front end is usually pulling data from its own back end, right, database or data store, and then it's presenting that back. And so I'd call that just like the architecture of the web. We all kind of basically know and understand that, right? And the I would say this is like a, a different architecture to accomplish some of those similar types of goals. But given the new architecture, it works in a very different way and actually can enable applications that have like a very different characteristic. And I say the most interesting characteristic that I'd say it has is since the web was invented, we've had uh, the sort of, we've discovered that feeds are interesting, right? Like that wasn't sort of as well understood or known in, you know, the early 90s when like the stuff was really starting to happen. Um, and then, you know, sort of we had RSS in 99, which was an example of a feed system, but th it had kind of limitations and problems from participation. Uh, and then kind of in the sort of Facebook and Twitter era, we saw feeds and participation really just, you know, it's obvious every every human in the world wants to participate in the web in this way, consuming some writing as well. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so that thing is not really supported by the previous web architecture. And so we have to invent a new architecture to be able to handle publishing in this new way. Um, and so the, the general way I'd describe Noster is it's a very simple protocol for publishing content, these messages, to relays. And relays are like data stores. So they don't generate front ends, but they actually will give messages to whoever asked for them and they'll store messages for whoever asked them to. Um, and they are voluntary. So anybody who wants can run one. You don't have to sign up. You don't need an API. You don't need somebody to bless you. You just run one and start telling people that you're available. Um, and so the data store then can be, it's kind of a dumb data store and it is responsive to requests and that's separate from clients. So people build clients today. And so like Domus is one of the ones that I've been using a lot. It's an iOS client that connects to as many relays as, as you want. So I have mine configured, I think, to connect to about 10 relays right now. And so when I'm using Domus, it's asking all of those relays for information about things that I might want. And so that's sort of the what I'd call the basics of the new architecture is you've really separated the data stores from the clients. And so users can choose any client they want and not be dependent on a given data store. Whereas in the old web, sort of the web request couples the UI to the data store. I think that's sort of kind of the architectural piece that's interesting, but like, what does this enable? What does it mean? I'd say the most interesting thing is it makes everything much more voluntary. So you can run a relay if you want, you can use whichever client you want to access the data on a relay. And in the 
past these proprietary systems, you know, like WhatsApp, if you message me on WhatsApp, I have to consume it and participate on WhatsApp. I can't mm -hmm. receive it on WhatsApp and then I can't receive it on like Gchat if you want to use WhatsApp. So there's no real interoperability, right? But mm -hmm. all of those systems are, you know, roughly doing the same thing. Like there's little bits of nuance in the UX of, you know, iMessage, Gchat, WhatsApp, et cetera. But they basically all kind of do the same thing. They deliver messages. Maybe they have emojis and replies and different mechanics around that. But they're kind of the same thing. So it's sort of a unfortunate situation we're in right now where, you know, we don't have a good way to do more interop, more creativity on how clients work and what kind of data they depend on. And that means you have things like in the social networking use cases, which I think are kind of the important showcase ones that we have today. Um, you have problems in content moderation that then have to be decided by a single company that ultimately is a single person who has to try to make, you know, try to make smart decisions about content moderation for the whole world and mm -hmm. languages they don't understand cultures they don't understand, you know, so, and trying to be responsive to government requests. So mm -hmm. having a centralized company in that position is just, I think, not as good as being able to push it out to the edges and letting other, you know, you could have different laws and different jurisdictional compliance, mm -hmm. you know, if, if you want a system like that, but uh, having it all roll up to a single company, single corporate entity, single individual, I think is, is a big problem that we experience every day. And that's both on like content moderation, which is another flavor of saying like, which algorithm should we use and then which client features mm -hmm. should we build and how should interop work? So there's a bunch of things that kind of come out of all of that, but Anyway, I've I've been rambling a little bit on Nasser architecture, so yeah. Well, yeah, I have many thoughts on many of the things you said. So, yeah. um, I think I mean I think the content moderation one, which is maybe more of an issue in the feeds and le less of an issue in the messaging apps. Yep, um, that's a super interesting topic, and I know that it's something that the decentralized movement, the, the Web three people, are very passionate about. And we could spend many hours like having. Right. A discussion about how different companies are moderating or not moderating and whether they should be doing it differently um i guess in terms of a more pragmatic question i have on that front is do we actually believe that um due to moderation being maybe suboptimal in some ways on some of the big feeds that that people use do we actually think that there's room for a new feed, whether it's centralized or decentralized, that just does moderation differently. Um, and I, I guess that's very, it's a leading question in, the, in that I am skeptical uh, on that, on whether content moderation is something that the centralized entity will screw up so badly that there, there'll be room, they could screw it up so badly that there would be room for something new. And that's kind of what some of these new right-wing social networks are about, mm -hmm. is that they they believe that the centralized ones are too controlled by the left and, and so the so that there's like new feeds for the right and i i would you would you roughly agree that 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 movement overall hasn't been very successful as of 2023 yeah uh, so yeah there's i mean a few things i'd want to um at least uh just clarify a little bit of language so that the pitchforks mm -hmm. don't come out I know you mentioned okay. Web3, and I think that will be, uh, that would not, you know, people who are building in the Nostra ecosystem would not identify as Web3 related. 
Sure, sure. Even sure. though maybe Web3 people would see it as kind of similar movement. But I think we haven't really seen, I'd say, something in this flavor. So we've seen people who have talked about doing decentralized things, but I think we haven't seen something that has kind of these same kind of foundational principles that that Nostra is built on. But but I guess I, I guess just to clarify the question, like putting aside centralized or decentralized, like do you think that the current state of content moderation is such that there is room for some new social feed in which like the content moderation isn't being done by one of the big current companies is that do you think that there's room for that in general yeah i mean i i think content moderation is a little bit of a of a like i don't think it's a good reason to sell an idea to the general public because i think mm -hmm. the general public probably doesn't feel the pain of how content moderation and in, in let's say more broadly algorithmic feed systems work like people don't know what you know what impact it may have on them and why they would like it or they might not like it like i think the general mm -hmm. person's just trying to get on with their life you know they could investigate mm -hmm. these things if they really cared deeply but they probably mostly have other priorities in life um so i think you know as a mass market thing i would not argue that if you just offer this content moderation you know mm -hmm. alternative that that that's going to be enough to instigate a, a kind of a broad societal move i i think about i think about it more in the micro which is there are some people who are very passionate about this and mm -hmm. if you can get them all together on what's effectively a discord but a decentralized version of that but like you could start a new discord you could get thousands of people who all care about something to gather there mm -hmm. and and if there's enough energy there that can leak out to other things because the people who care about that are also others and fathers and alpine skiers and gardeners and mm -hmm. bicyclists and Buenos Aires, you know, travelers. So there's mm -hmm. a lot. I think it's not so much about like content moderation is why you should come. It's more like mm -hmm. there's a bunch of people who do care about the technical underpinnings and the more abstract ideas of content moderation being important and and um, you know transparency in algorithms and feeds being important, and as long as you've got enough of those people, and I would consider myself one of those people, um, mm -hmm. as long as you can assemble enough people together who care about that, I think you have the opportunity to leak out and aggregate more interest in this thing over time. Got it. Okay. Does that? I'm not. I'm, I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical of that claim. Okay. Um, just it, like I think that there are some people who care about this enough, but 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 actually, I also think that the moves from that there has kind of been a move from feeds and even like feed based group products like Facebook groups mm -hmm. toward towards more like group messaging and Discord and that kind of thing maybe in part because there's less filtering or less algorithmic ranking or whatever, but also just maybe because it's just a better medium for, for that kind of interaction. Right. Um, yeah, I buy that. I think, I think there are, um, you know, a, a large, let's say a large WhatsApp group or a large discord 
has can if it's curated properly, it can have the feel of like a really high quality feed system, even though a lot of it happens in chat, right? Mm -hmm. And do you think that there are people who are on with just the like centralized status quo on on those products? Because of lack of transparency or centralized control or, or whatever it might be? Well, I, I think the kind of centralized control idea is, you know, it is something that if you look at it as a technologist and builder in the abstract, you can mm -hmm. see it. But I think it's not an attractive value prop to somebody who might care about a specific subreddit or a Discord group that they're on. I think most people you know, could care about it if they wanted to go down that path, but I think it's not necessarily a priority for most people to spend a lot of time doing that. So I think the way you go from like a a niche of people who have done the thinking and work on it to care about it and get it to be more useful to a broader audience is I think you need to build new products and services that serve needs that cannot be served with centralized uh, build build processes right so it's you know i think if you know it, it's amazing actually the kinds of innovation that you can see when you have something working well enough and is fully open source that just like everybody comes with their best ideas and they just try stuff so i mm -hmm. think some of the problems with the w3c processes is i think those are those are better for like if you want to do the consortium stuff i think that's kind of like the right way to go from html4 to html5 if it's kind of evolutionary in a sense mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's sort of you know like uh, i think clay christensen right is famous for the sustaining innovation versus disruptive innovation i think w3c is great for sustaining innovation of the web i think if you want to do something like this it's a little bit more of a disruptive innovation i don't think it can come about through consortiums and agreements because everybody's gonna have their hands in a different a different starting point i think it just needs to have you know some minimal software that works and that people find, you know, some set of people find value in and they want to keep coming back every day and using that software. And that's, I would consider myself in that camp. And, and I'll admit that it's kind of niche today, but, um, but you know, it, it works for us. <laughs> but, but by the way, just, just to be clear, because I don't know how much you've followed this, it, it's, it's niche. I'm granting that it's niche, but like, I think, I think Domus app had... I think Will announced that it had 146,000 downloads in the first three days. And it's not like some spammy growth hacking techniques. It's just like people want to learn about this and try it out and see what the experience is like. What, what, kinds, of, what kinds of positive experiences have you had using it? Well, my experience is mostly being able to play with a curated community of people who all kind of care about this idea i'd say mm -hmm. the core of what i like about nostra is it's an idea that i've hoped could exist in some way for call it a decade or more mm -hmm. but i've not found a good credible like i think things are either like it's a fully centralized social network and it really moves fast at doing a single version that is useful enough to you know kind of the whole population or mm -hmm. something is so ideological or so consortium-based that it never really gets off the ground. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of compromises that Nostra makes that are that are underexplored and that are actually now exciting enough that people are actually using it. So, you know, it, I think like, like 
a fully peer-to-peer system has a lot of problems and Nostra mm-hmm. is not a fully peer-to-peer system. It's got these like relays that operate as a peer-like thing in service of whoever wants to use them. But it has this mm-hmm. voluntarism and loose, you know, kind of con- connectivity and collaboration between the kind of users, clients, and relays. And it, it just kind of works. So for me, like, why do I keep coming back? It's not like the features are so much better than some other features. Like the people who care about this thing that I care about are all gathered there. Um, there are some cool things, though, that are features you couldn't have seen. You can't really experiment with this kind of stuff before. But um, are, are you familiar with uh, the Lightning Network and Lightning Payments on top of Bitcoin? A little bit, yeah. Okay, so it's you're familiar with Bitcoin, right? It's kind of a new yeah. meme, right? And so yeah. Lightning Network is, you know, one of the problems with Bitcoin is, you know, the transactions only settle every 10 minutes or so, and there can be expensive right. fees, and there's a bunch of issues. And so Lightning Network was created as a way to do kind of fast, instant, you know, basically free payments. So I could just yeah. send you a payment, and you can receive it, and then it's done. And it's denominated in Satoshis, which are, a, you know, a subunit of a Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And so... One of the things that is fun, it's not part of Noster, but it is part of Domus, which is probably mm-hmm. the largest, I guess it's the largest, most used client on Noster right now, is um, they have integrated, Will, he <laughs> has integrated um, a lightning address in your profile. So you can set up to receive lightning payments in your profile. Mm-hmm. And if you publish a lightning invoice, you can publish it and it renders it nicely with a pay button. And so people like le- last night I was running this little Satoshi giveaway party. I called it sats on sats Saturday mm-hmm. night sat party. And um, I just said, you know, send me an invoice for 21 sats and I'll, I'll pay it. And so I just like started paying all these people 21 sats. And it was just like kind of a fun thing that you could do. It's like, you can try out this technology that, right is not you can't really do that kind of experimentation with a a centralized provider like facebook or twitter like you just can't you can't experiment that quickly right well well that's um so when you actually presented the case for decentralized you raised um the fact that you know it's unfortunate that messaging is now fragmented into a few centralized apps and I know that like the EU is actively looking. I think they actually passed a law about uh, interop, right? So you could do messaging between the different big apps. Right. Um, and um, and one of the things you said was there's less innovation because it's these big companies. And that's an interesting claim mm-hmm. um, because... There's definitely, and again, I'm playing devil's advocate. Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure where my own views are on this. Yeah, yeah, but there's definitely the other side of this <laughs> that would say, I mean, I think Bill Gates back in the day said something like, "Open source is communism," um, and like, there's no incentive. No one is going to make money in the end, so, that, so they're not going to innovate. Um, so that would be <clears throat> one argument. Um, there's also, I, I mean, I, I think you could make the claim that what we've seen is that companies like um facebook slash meta and apple and google and wechat in china and others in other countries have invested billions of dollars in 
messaging apps that many of which don't actually make much money in the end. Um, mm-hmm. So they've actually it's it's probably been a, a major consumer mm-hmm. positive, right? Um, uh, because it's considered strategic and uh, and because it's and because it's hyper competitive because between these different massive companies that have tons of money, right. um, and you could make the case that that actually it's been great for innovation and for consumers. Like we get kind of high quality, free high quality video conversations across the world. Yep. Um, like I grew up like with having to do short phone calls with my relatives in other countries because right. international phone calls were expensive. Um, so, so I, I question that argument on like, this is better for innovation. I, I, um, I, like if, Facebook or Twitter or whatever wanted a button on the profile that said "send me some money," whether it's in in like dollars or um, cryptocurrency of some kind. Um, that's a thing that they could do. Some of them have done versions of mm-hmm. it. Um, I mean, obviously, there's, there's this whole micropayments question about tiny amounts of money and the fees and stuff. So, like that, that's an interesting point. But um, yeah, so I'm I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. A lot of things to cover there. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the, the, that there, that you do need incentives to be able to move the pace of development forward faster and get more people involved. Like, I don't think everybody should be sort of, you know, uh, on a hippie commune, just contributing for free. Like, I understand why people do it. Uh, I understand why people don't do it, but would like to do it. And so I think it is important to have incentive systems in place. Uh, so I would agree with that. I don't know about the Bill Gates quote. Like, I would look at things like Linux, which I think is a, an example of an enabling technology. We would not have Google or Facebook if they had to license Solaris, which was kind of you know the the main choice. Or if we all had to license Oracle databases, we would not have Facebook and Google. So I think having a you know, have, how do the incentives work around Linux development? I think that's the closest kind of analogy I would point to here, which is like a lot of people really care about it. You know, I mean, I, I was telling my wife, like, I think in 96, I installed Linux on my desktop in my college dorm. And it was like very painful and it wasn't quite sure what we were going to do with it. And we thought it was maybe like a desktop OS. And like, it turned out it was not really, I mean, yeah, sure. People use it for that in a very niche way, but like, she uses Linux. She didn't know she uses Linux, but she uses Instagram and Google. And so she uses Linux. She's a beneficiary of the creation of that open source technology, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's invisible to her. And I think that's probably a similar kind of path that this kind of thing would take, which is Mm -hmm. you don't necessarily have to say like, Oh, I really care about running my own relay. You know, maybe everybody today who's using it basically is interested in that idea and like, what does it mean and how does it work and how should relays evolve? Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's critical that everybody runs their own relay for all time. I think it's like, you know, fine to just rely on other people's relays and you know, maybe some mix of relays that you choose to work on. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think the relays, so to your point around sort of the, the communism and Bill Gates thing too, I think there's um, probably some real businesses that can be built here and there are costs and there's value to be transferred among these parties. And so I don't think it's necessarily like 
fully hippie, you know, communism, open source. I don't know what, what all kind of ideas may, may kind of be attached to that. But, um, but relays to operate a relay, you receive messages, store them and send them when people ask you to. <clears throat> and, um, and there's real cost to there's bandwidth, compute, and storage costs to operating a relay. And so, if you're operating a relay at any scale, somebody has to pay for that. And it could be in the goodness of the relay operator's heart, or it could be that these things get so big that, and we're already seeing actually in the last few days, it's it's really started to become a problem where people have now there's a bunch of competing paid relays, and they have the additional benefit that they are filtering a lot of spam because there is a lot of low quality messaging that gets created in a, <laughs> an ecosystem like this. Um, so I could imagine a world where relay operators, you know, are, you know, potentially large commercial entities. And, you know, I think it's a risk. Something we want to keep an eye on is like, we would hope that there's not just a single relay operator that becomes dominant and is all the best interconnectivity and the best performance. And so all of the value flows in and out of them. I think that would be like, you know, I think it's good to have a greenfield space for exploration, but I think that would end up a recentralization like that would, I think, be a sad or unfortunate, you know, outcome of all of this. But I think it's unlikely that that is the outcome. But it, but it wouldn't surprise me if there's, you know, half a dozen or more, you know, very large relays over time. You know, if you fast forward 10 years, there could be half a dozen relays. Maybe I hope more. I hope there's like, you know, thousands that are very commercially viable. But because there's that cost, there has to be a payment relationship between clients and relays. And so that's probably between users and clients and clients and relays. So effectively users and relays. So I I think this is all real time getting explored and being worked out. So I wouldn't say, here's the answer. It's going to look like this. But I think it would be hard to solve any of these problems if we didn't have a kind of native internet money with the free payment system. So I think part of, there's a lot of overlap, like Noster's totally independent of Lightning or Bitcoin, but there's a lot of overlap and in interest between people who uh, are, mm -hmm. you know, have appreciate the characteristics of Bitcoin and Lightning and appreciate the characteristics of Noster because they have a lot of reason to kind of go hand in hand. Um, I don't mm -hmm. know if I caught all of the points. <laughs> uh, what, what, what was I missing? Well, I, I think you're so. I think that you're correct that when these protocols are more open and the open standards and whatnot, that there is more room for a random hacker to do interesting new things. Um, that could be more difficult for a big company to do. Um, I think the question, like the practical empirical thing that has come up in previous generations of these debates seems to be that in order to get to mass consumer adoption there tends to be some big centralized company behind it whether it's ios and android being built on top of linux right um or whether it's uh i mean the gmail case is interesting but yeah gmail building really good spam filtering because they're a big company with a lot of good engineers who can do that well Yep. Um, or whether it's yeah Facebook or, or Twitter or these completely closed systems. Um, so that it, the way it has played out previously, not to say that that's what will happen again, but it's that these big companies with lots of money and lots of people 
um, turn out to, to actually win in terms of mass consumer adoption, right? Yep. Um, so that that would be one cha- challenge, and, and yeah, these things have played out differently in different times and different product areas. I mean, I would um, call it mostly like it's a new design space with different contours. So Google and Facebook would not be effective. I mean, if they really wanted to, if they really cared about this particular instance and technology and idea, they could come in, but they're not going to, I think, when it's so small and niche and weird. And But it's structurally very different. So I think mm-hmm. if we prove that this new structure is interesting to a broad enough set of people, I think it's unlikely that the existing players can just swoop in and and do it, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think, yeah. which I which I don't think is the like I think with with AI like with you know the large language models and you know things like facial recognition like large players cannot really be caught flat footed in that area mm-hmm. because they've been deeply investing in it forever they care about it deeply it could be disruptive to the business so they have good coverage of how to not let it be disruptive so I think. The more that it's like an AI primitive, the less likely it is that a large, you know, tech company is going to get caught flat-footed. The more that it's like a yeah. new architecture, I think it's kind of everything's up for grabs again. So yeah. it doesn't necessarily mean the new players who win at this version don't end up, you know, you fast forward 10, 20 years from now, maybe there's a bunch of people behaving badly. But I hope that the new design space that's opened up here. I don't think is capturable by big tech. And I hope that it could be, you know, the contours of it suggest it may be, may be able to be kept more open and decentralized. So let me ask a, a different kind of question. So yep. that so Elon Musk took over Twitter and that seems to have sparked this interest in people wanting to create alternatives. Um I, which is interesting. Um, lots of like famous uh, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs yep. are now in in that space, right? Um, and I, yeah, one big question is like, will any of that work in the end? Would, but but let's just assume that 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 actually some of it does somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess it, so. If you're an entrepreneur who's interested in that, who's interested in trying to kind of cannibalize Twitter in some way. Um, so kind of pitch to the entrepreneur for doing Nasta versus doing their own proprietary system the same way that the old social networks did. Right. Well, I, I guess it, a lot of it depends on what the entrepreneur is planning to do, like what the entrepreneur is planning to accomplish. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I think I, I shared, or you, you saw this tweet that I wrote, which is basically, uh, let me see if I've got... I said, the future of social is mostly decentralized, but the rare exception is if a new social behavior is primarily dependent on AI for its core experience. And mm-hmm. so I think if if something is not, let's take the category of things where it's not dependent on AI uh, mm-hmm. in any material way right now. Um, I think new, Wait, so would you, would, you, would you include if, would you include like relevancy based feed ranking as AI in, in that or, or no? Well, I think if if relevant base relevancy based feed ranking is core to a new product experience, I think it's mm-hmm. hard to get that product experience off the ground. Meaning, it, oh, just because like there's no one there in the beginning, or or why? Yeah, there's like there's not enough data. It's not unique enough. 
So, so like, I don't know if you played with Artifact. Is this this new thing? So the Kevin, yeah, yeah, Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger, the uh, co-founders of Instagram, launched this thing recently in test flight called uh, Artifact, or maybe it went into the App Store recently. I don't know if it's maybe in the App Store, but it's a bunch of news content, so kind of text-based content primarily, Mm -hmm. that is meant to sort of learn your habits and behaviors and try to continually improve what it serves you. Mm-hmm. So that's a form of AI, I'd say, you know, kind of like mm-hmm. recommendations, relevancy. Um, I think the challenge with that kind of... Is it is it kind of TikTok-like? Is it TikTok-like in terms of not requiring a follow graph as much? Or It, or, it doesn't require yeah. a follow graph because there's nobody publishing in it, which I think is okay. tricky. Like, I think the... It's fine to have no following graph, but I think if you don't have people, you don't have like a creative unit or you don't have content that is sort of de novo to that platform, like it just first surfaced on the internet through that platform, I think it's hard to create a new social experience around kind Mm -hmm. of existing data with like just Mm -hmm. better algorithms or better relevancy as sort of the pitch. Like we saw a spate of these, like I think about 10 years ago, I don't know if you played with Mm -hmm. like, I think Circa, Flipboard, there were a bunch of different apps yeah. like really well designed really well executed but in but but they sort of there's there wasn't enough kind of new stuff that shows up there to make it the place to go do that thing whereas tiktok it's like the only place to find those videos yes. at least in day zero for that was on tiktok so that became the poll mm-hmm. why you should go do that thing there um so i would say relevance um i think is fine but you know should sh- probably probably tough to have relevance as a starting point for a better product experience. I think relevance is kind of like you could, you know, defend a product experience that's working and improve a product experience if you add more relevance to it. But again, that's kind of like a sort of with the assumption, the, I mean, you have to sort of have something working first. Um, and I think the, I think you know, the idea of relevance in the Nostra world is very different from the idea of relevance in kind of the Facebook, Twitter, kind of more closed world, which is like the way Nostra works today is you publish messages and you just kind of pull back messages and you get whichever ones, the relays you asked for have available for you. There's no guarantee that you have every message that you asked for. The person you're following may be on a different relay. There's no good way to discover, prioritize which relays you know about or are pulling from. Like those are all unsolved problems, you know, yet to be solved. Um, but you you can basically say like present everything in order is like a very simple version of that. And if and when you want to do relevance, you could have a relay or some sort of middleware or even a client that chooses different ways to provide relevance. But I think the ideal relevance would be a an architecture where it's pluggable and you can choose which algorithm you want. And most people probably just want to choose whichever one people tell them is a good one. Like most people don't want to like really prosecute what is, what is the meaning of a given algorithm. But um, one of the things that, that you can get in that kind of system is you can get an algorithm that is in service of the consumer who's consuming and today, all of the algorithms are built in service of the platform's needs. Like, let's cause more divisiveness because it drives people to engage more. It gives us more page views. We can serve more ads. 
probably just, yeah, rough <laughs> rough distillation of how algorithms work. I, I don't think they start out with evil intent, but in the sort of extreme optimized world that we live in today, you know, some product manager got a promotion because he got, you know, better engagement on this certain page or whatever. And, and so like the incentives around how big tech operates cause those, you know, cause you to optimize for page views and you don't really care about like how much divisiveness you create in the world. If you have a open pluggable architecture for relevance with transparency on which algorithms do which things, you can just select one of them. If you don't like it, try another, ask your friend which one you should be using. Your smart technical friend who knows, who's really done the analysis can suggest you do X instead of Y. Right. So it's just like gives a lot more choice, I think is, is what's interesting about it. But but you were saying the okay. pitch to the pitch to a, an entrepreneur who may not be doing this. So I think I, I was mentioning, that I think it really depends a lot on the content type and sort of what is the purpose of the the network or the software that you're building. Um, and I think a lot of the ones that I've seen have popped up that are trying to sort of in the, you know, feeling some dissatisfaction with Twitter, come try this new product instead. I think they mostly suffer from the problem that despite best intentions, when you have a single individual making those decisions, the, that's kind of the failure of it is that a single person still has to decide. Maybe a person who's different, I'll even grant maybe somebody out there is smarter than Elon Musk. That's that's not off the table, but <laughs> it's still a person and it's still going to come with that person's choices and it's not going to be replaceable or pluggable for anybody's choices. And I think the magic is when you can make it more protocol-like and allow people to plug in algorithms they want, use clients they want, try out features they want, and you sort of just open up an explosion of more faster innovation because the thing you were talking about centralized platforms being able to execute rapidly and I, I would generally agree with that but they execute towards like the lowest common denominator right so if you're building Facebook messenger you have to build it for eight billion people yep and don't yep. put in any features like if if there's not enough left-handed people in the world you wouldn't have a switch to say make it easy for left-handed people to use this or maybe there's like you know left to right languages and right to left languages and they need different features and you kind of have to prioritize those and you defer things that don't apply and you don't want a big messy settings page. So there's all kinds right. of reasons that for big tech, you can move fast, but you move fast in kind of peanut butter solutions where you try to, you know, load yep. the common denominator, spread it thin. What I think a more open ecosystem enables is you can build very specific, very deep uh, feature sets that serve people's needs like in a really deep way for a very limited set of people. So it doesn't have to scale to be useful by a billion people. It can actually be useful by, you know, 50,000 or, you know, maybe right. a million people, but not even 10 million in cases. Yeah, that that is definitely a trend that I buy. Um, that's definitely something we grappled with a lot on Gmail because we, I think Gmail in the beginning was sort of built by a bunch of silic, like young Silicon Valley techies in their 20s who... Um, were kind of building for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and Gmail was in the beginning was so much better than other products like Mail and AOL and Yahoo Mail in terms of storage and interface and search and spam and ads and all that stuff that even if it was kind of built by these 20-somethings for themselves and for their friends, it was just so much better in, in so many ways that people, uh, that it still got adoption. Um, mm -hmm. But then 
over time, it kind of gets to hundreds of millions of users and then billions of users. And now you have like people in developing countries who are only accessing it on their Android, right? Different than, than the people in it. And, um, then we saw things like Mailbox, which was like a cool Silicon Valley mail client that was acquired by Dropbox. And then there was Superhuman, um, which is, I think, still around and still pretty successful with, um, Silicon Valley tech people. Um, and that, a lot of that does come from what you just said, which is like, it's hard to build the thing that makes sense for so many different types of people. Um, and, then you you could also argue that like something like Slack um, was was another kind of fragmentation like yep. that where it's like w- what if we just built something that was amazing for work and wasn't trying to also be the thing that like soccer moms used to manage email they get about their kids at school yep. and that kind of thing um, and um, I always kind of thought that one reason why that fragmentation happened I'm curious what you think of I don't think we we we've ever discussed this. I think that when Gmail was first being built um, it, in the early 2000s, it was it, it was the early era of the the web, and it it was difficult to build good web apps. There were not many companies that knew how to do it or could do it, both in terms of having like scaled scaled cloud services with tons of storage, and but also all kinds of JavaScript libraries and things that didn't exist, and so it had to be the one big company that was amazing at this thing that that could do it. And by the time Slack came around, like 10, 15 years mm-hmm. later, um, there was an, there was AWS and there was all these other things that made it much easier to build like more focused things for these smaller use cases. Um, and in general, it shifted towards more like, uh, it also shifted towards like less engineering type people building it and more like design and user experience and product type people building it. And that trend kind of regardless of centralized, decentralized, that trend of it becoming cheaper and easier for more and more people to build things. Yep. Um, continue continues. Um, I mean, we might see with some of the generative AI stuff that 10 years from now, you could say like, build me a version of Gmail, that has these three other features that Gmail doesn't have and doesn't yep. have these 10 features that I don't like. Um, and like everyone could build their own thing and it might actually work. Right. So, so I think that's a super interesting trend. Um, and, and with Gmail, with, with, or or with email, the things that have happened up until now, um, were possible because it's using email under the hood or SMTP under the hood and you could access you, 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 your client could be built by someone else. And that wouldn't have been true for some of these completely closed systems like WhatsApp or iMessage. And, uh, and you, you, there have been some startups who have tried to build like new clients that maybe unify your messaging inboxes, but right, right. very difficult to, to hack into the system like that. Um, yeah, they are so, quite, quite messy. Yeah. To try to, yeah, to try to unify those. Uh, but, I, but I think the idea of being able to like, I think the trend you're pointing out, which I agree with, is, you know, sort of 20 years ago, um, you know, it, it 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 took a lot. You had to provision machines. You had to, you know, you didn't have great JavaScript libraries. So it, it, it took a lot to build something like Gmail. So it was great to get V1 of, like, web email, like a really, you know, high-scale web email um, from a centralized provider. But, um, and, you know, I, I think we, we haven't really seen... 
a big push out of that. But um, but I think in social networking, there's a lot more frustration with kind of the status quo. Um, and, you know, you see a lot of energy brought towards it, which we don't have that kind of energy, you know, brought towards towards kind of finding new email providers. But email is ultimately just messaging. So if we do have a new, if we do have a new messaging thing, we could have messaging that has an email-like consumption interface if we have the ability to do messaging. And by the way, I don't want to overstate the use of Nostr for messaging. It's kind of like pretty subpar today. I'd say the thing that it really shines at is uh, the architecture for publishing stuff. If you actually want to do like direct message, private email type stuff, like it kind of works, but it has like some severe drawbacks that probably could be fixed. I haven't seen anything that doesn't look like it could be fixed, but just to be clear, I'm not advocating that Nostr should be used for doing interop of messaging or, you know, making email better today. Um, but I think it, there is that trend that you're pointing out is like, you know, the technology pieces are kind of easy enough and more accessible to more people. And so now you can actually build clients that serve niche use cases. And maybe even someday there's, you know, codex type LLM, you know, you can speak to it and just tell it what you want. And then you get the client that you want. Um, it, it, it seems like we're on some sort of inexorable march toward that. I can't imagine that that doesn't happen, right? Like, is there, is there any argument to say that we won't be able to generate those clients? Um, no, no, I do think that directionally that will happen. I'm still not 100% sure whether it ends up being centralized or decentralized. You wouldn't say conclusively that means that a decentralized approach needs to happen. It could be that the centralized providers would provide some sort of like a low-code, no-code toolkit or LLM-based NLP LLM toolkit to build your own Gmail client just by sort of expression or explanation. Yes, it could. I'm not I'm not saying I, my, I would predict one way or the other. Uh, right. defin- I mean, definitely in, in Gmail, one of the things we definitely went through uh, and the pendulum kind of swung in different directions at different points in time. Um, but we, there were periods where everyone on the, on the Gmail team wanted, even, even Google people who were not on the Gmail team wanted to build some new little feature in Gmail or some new setting that they really liked that, that would make them more productive. Um, as like a Google employee who received a lot of email at Google. Um, and then most of those, or many of those things didn't, get shipped into the main product so they were setting somewhere or a gmail lab or something right. um and then over time it did become much too complex operationally to run it that way um begin to support them as settings yes um but you can kind of think about the qa problem just the qa problem alone is tricky because uh every time you add a setting you're like doubling the amount of QA you have to do in a way. Yep. Right. Uh, yep. and so it begins this exponential yeah. uh problem. Um and you had, you know, like Gmail to this day actually still has these different ways you can arrange your inbox and like split panes and like pr- mm-hmm. priority inbox and tabs and this like all this different stuff. And so so the Gmail theme is yes, would would pendulum swing into like sometimes we try to just kill most of those things and like mm-hmm. decide either to bake them into the core product or just kill them completely and like reduce the number of, of settings because it was it was just too much to manage um and i so that kind of thing i could see if there was a good underlying protocol 
Um, it would be easier if you could have lots of different teams build lots of different clients. Um, but on that front, yeah, yeah. So, well, so in that sense, I think in a sense, it's been healthy that you've been able to have like, um, superhuman as, mm-hmm. and, and an ecosystem of other mail apps like that. Yeah. Um, and different people can have different purposes and that has been healthy relative to like a Facebook feed or something like that, that hasn't had anything like that. Um, so that's true. I, I think I, I buy that that argument. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, how, how do you feel about like if you were trying to explain this to let's say you know I think there's all these people who are building new feed systems right sort of like centralized corporations that are sort of trying to compete with Twitter in a pretty yep. direct you know like a you know a Twitter derivative type product. Do you yep. do you find any of those ideas compelling? You know, kind of as centralized companies. Uh, uh, do I find any of the new Twitter alternatives compelling? Is there anything that you've heard? Just I, I haven't surveyed it exhaustively, but I wonder. You know, I'm, I'm aware of some projects going on in that space, um, yeah. and I'm wondering if there's anything that you've heard that kind of gets your spidey sense going and thinking, oh, like maybe there's a possibility to do something different because of thing X or Y. I haven't seen anything too exciting on that front. Um, it seems like. The, I guess I'm very consumer oriented. Like, why is the mm-hmm. ordinary end user going to choose some new product? Yeah. And on that front, it seems like um, the biggest argument with these Twitter alternatives is like, we hate Elon. So, what if we could use something that Elon didn't own? Um, and if I'm, I guess, generally skeptical of that sentiment being strong enough. Um, mm-hmm. I guess the strongest version of that argument might be that some of the really important creators on Twitter don't like Elon. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if a bunch of them move somewhere else, that could be interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in, yeah, so that side of the, like the two-sided market, if you will, like that the creators would all move somewhere else where it's not Elon and, um, and then a bunch of the followers would move as well. That that could be interesting. That could happen. Uh, it's a little bit of like the truth social thing, right? Like, it might. I haven't found yeah. the drama entirely, but my understanding is Donald Trump was kicked off of Twitter and then launched what's effectively a a Twitter like competitor, which I think was actually on Mastodon. But people did move to that because they wanted that content from a large, you know, a large audience voice that people wanted to to participate with. Yeah, I, I mean, I think with with the whole truth social parlor uh what are the other ones rumble rumble um that whole world i think there's both the creator side but there's also the i think the people the end consumers that have this shared belief that the big social networks are run by people on the left who don't like people Mm -hmm. on the right and who are trying to Mm -hmm. censor their ideas and so they want someone that's uncensored and I think that there is some meaningful minority of users who think that, and specifically about left, like political left versus political right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I yeah, I mean, it. I could see some people moving over to something like a right wing Twitter. Right. Um, I, I would hypothesize but, that yeah. the world is possibly less 
polarized than it appears. Yes. And that the that the platforms we have kind of shine a light and showcase the polarization. Yes. But like like I I don't consider myself left or right. I like I think there's fine ideas in different camps and different topics and I there's nothing that I say like this really speaks to me. And I mm-hmm. I kinda wonder are there a lot of people that don't really feel like there's one group that really represents them well and they're really somewhat more in the middle of this. And so mm-hmm. you, know, you could take a strong stance on a bunch of issues, but they don't necessarily align with those two poles. They're like you may right. have a strong stance on, you know, some fiscal policy and a totally different strong stance on a social yeah. policy and there's just like no party that really serves that need. My guess is there's more people, if you really got down to it, more people who have, you know, more nuanced beliefs and that maybe there's, you know, it may be the fact that, you know, the world is 80% more like, like non-polar, but the media yeah. that we consume and the networks that we consume cause people to self-identify or yeah. get, you know, aroused to the point of participation in the the trauma that exists online because of those those labels and kind of I, I would I would tend to agree with that. I think from a from a product perspective, I think actually an inter- a more interesting hypothesis than like someone is on the right and they hate that Twitter is censoring the right or they hate that Facebook mm-hmm. is sent or whatever. A more interesting product hypothesis might be um most people are yeah somewhere kind of more moderate more in the middle um or they may even have kind of extreme views but even if they have extreme views and certainly if they're in the middle what they may not like is the fact that when you go on twitter it's just a shit show and it's just people (laughs) it's people fighting um about things that they don't need to be fighting about um and it's just it's it can actually be stressful to open the app and see that and Actually, the um, Twitter has this um, community notes uh, feature, oh, yeah, or, right. or something like that, right? Um, where I think they actually have some do some interesting algorithm things, where essentially they show you notes that people on different sides and people who otherwise disagree agreed on this note. Oh, I see. Um, yeah. And it's it's actually kind of an interesting moderating force. Yep. And I I actually that. The, the note I've actually found the notes to be super interesting, um, hmm. and I don't think I noticed those. Is it where's the best place to notice? I've heard of that concept existing, but I don't feel like I've seen tweets that have a bunch of like moderate agreement topics. I think I think you have to open the tweet and it's in its own page, and hmm. I think they only show up for like pretty big tweets. Like if you open any tweet from Joe Biden or. Even from Elon Musk, I think you'll mm-hmm. see, like, and and I guess there's always a conversation going. I've mean, well, it's it. I think it's presented as like a summary, uh, not not a, a discussion. Oh, okay, um, but but I've mainly seen it where where essentially the claim that's being made by the person who tweeted is actually quite wrong. Uh, oh, and and essentially a bunch of people who otherwise disagree could all agree that it was kind of wrong and that they had this like intelligent explanation of Hmm. what's actually true um but anyway i only bring that up because i think that's been this like interesting new kind of information Mm -hmm. um that i've enjoyed consuming 
And like, yeah, that feature has made me enjoy using Twitter more. Um, and whereas like the, tw the Twitter ecosystem today for a bunch of complicated reasons, like has, uh, resulted in what you described, which is like, everyone is being very aggressive about disagreeing with each other in, in like very aggressive ways. And, and, um, so that dimension of like, maybe we could actually be exposed to like intelligent, interesting, nuanced yep. points of view where people are not just fighting with each other all the time. Like that, that could be a new Twitter. Right? Like that's if, if I was the entrepreneur trying to create the new yep. Twitter, I would do something like that where, where it's like that there is actually it. Maybe that that would be the hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Maybe there is a real problem where many millions or tens or hundreds of millions of people open Twitter and they actually kind of get stressed out in a way mm -hmm. when they open it. And, and that's a real kind of end user pain point that you can actually try to do something about. So, um, but that again, I think is kind of orthogonal to centralized versus decentralized right. potentially. Right. Yeah. I think um, the, the only part I, that I say may not be orthogonal is that if we had a decentralized network, that kind of experiment may have been run five or 10 years ago. So we just like the pace of that kind of experimentation is very slow when you have to wait until there's a big takeover with a big ideology and, you know, kind of right. a, a right. big change like that is sort of required. And I think if you have open source software that can be built to try out a UI like that, that you might have mm -hmm. tried that UI 10 years ago. I don't know. Yeah. I will say one thing, which is there's a very interesting kind of game theory dimension to all of this about underdogs versus uh whatever the antonym of underdog is the overdog uh, <laughs> the overdog uh, is good <laughs> uh and like with with all the platform stuff we've seen that like um like when apple when mac was the underdog yeah they liked the web because right they liked the they, they liked the open standard of the time Right, because essentially web developers would build, let's say, Gmail or Google Maps or Facebook or Amazon for the web browser, and the market share was all on Windows. Um, that's where people were accessing the web, and that was what motivated these companies to build web apps. But then Mac users could get um, web apps on the Mac through the web browser, right? Um, so Apple, when they were the underdog, loved the open standard, and then Apple becomes the overdog <laughs> right. with with the smartphone. And then they have a very closed app store where you build apps for the iPhone, and they don't work on any other device. Um, and they kind of Apple kind of became Microsoft in that sense. Um, and I could see a very strong case that if there is genuinely a bunch of strong kind of consumer sentiment that they want to leave Twitter because of Elon and because of yeah, whatever is happening on that platform. Um, that maybe the way that all the entrepreneurs who are now trying to build the Twitter alternative, maybe if they all were in one open standard, um, and they could have interop, then like maybe they would all be much more likely collectively to succeed at replacing Twitter than yep. if they try each try to do their own little closed fiefdom, right? Um, yeah, I I think that's true. I think the tricky part is the business models of such things are so vastly different that I think we don't collectively know how to wrap our minds around it. And so I think if you say, right, okay, somebody just went out and, you know, raised you know, $10 million to go build a new Twitter or whatever they would do. 
um, they're kind of assuming it's going to be a client and they metric on how many downloads or installs or daily monthly actives they have on that client and they're running their own database. And so if you start to say, well, what if you could participate with a whole group of people? I think the default is like, yeah, but then what do I own? Right? Right. And right. so I think we need to have like collective kind of rethink of what, you know, how you create value in this more collaborative way. And like, is, you know, maybe, maybe you build an amazing new experience and everybody chooses to use you because you're far out and hit far out in front and maybe it's fully open source. Maybe your client is fully open source because you figure if you, if you don't, you can't do the innovation as fast as like everybody who wants to contribute can. And so you kind of have to say, I'm going to give up. I don't need to be the biggest and best client possibly. I just need to like be, I, I need to be the best, but maybe I'm going to monetize by running a great relay or some sort of ad network for people who want free use of it. But some people can just pay. And like, there's all these new, like all this new service area and dimensions that can be explored if you sort of get, get some of these fundamentals going. And I think, I'd, I'd argue there's enough activity now that like it's going to keep going. Like people are going to keep using it. Maybe maybe you have 146,000 downloads and only 10,000 people stick around. But if you got 10,000 people publishing every day and showing up um, and there's good discussion, I think it's enough to like, it's enough of a Petri dish to like get, get that, you know, stable set of people kind of growing organically. Um, but I think actually maybe, maybe you've stumbled upon what I would give as one of the best pitches for this. So we were starting talking about like, is content moderation the reason an average user should come? And I, I kind of said, I don't think it's a great pitch to the average user, but I think this thing that you mentioned around, uh, let's call it like the Wikipedia like thing, you know, balanced views of a tweet. That's an example of a thing that I think a lot of people could f might find very compelling to like, you can say, look, it's not, it's not Twitter, which has all this, divisiveness, but it's this other thing where information is organized in a way that supports your needs and your interests. Um, maybe it's that, you know, maybe the next version of the Wikipedia of a tweet or the next feature like that would be what really, you know, makes a mainstream, you know, person think like, oh, this is something that I'm curious about. I want to learn more about. Um, I also think there's, you know, similar to another one we didn't really mention, but I think is, is really popping off is there's, you know, a lot of people like like you and I live in in a world where we have access to most you know kind of uh, yeah we have like largely free ish speech. There's a lot of people who have a much worse speech situation than us, and so I think yeah, similar to how you see you know you know Bitcoin is very popular in Venezuela, and it's like mm -hmm. kind of popular among very niche groups in the U.S. Let's say because I think mm -hmm. Venezuela experiences the pain more specifically than we do in the U.S. as, you know, coastal people with yep. good financial services. We don't experience yep. the pain as deeply. People in Hong yep. Kong, I think, experience some of the pain speech. Yeah. around speech. Yeah. And you see that yep. in kind of the, the early numbers, like Will, uh, JB55 is a creator of the Damas app. He was sharing some of the, how he's noticing it pop off in Hong Kong, or I think it was popping off in Hong Kong. Maybe somebody else was showing a web client popping in Hong Kong. Um, I may have gotten it wrong, but I think Hong Kong was was kind of a demonstration of people who don't necessarily have as much access to communicate the way they want. And is is that in Hong Kong, is that because 
the big American social network companies are censoring because the Chinese government wants them to, or is it because the actual the government is actually preventing access so to I'm, the social networks? Yeah, I'm I'm not an expert on Hong Kong politics at all. I just I think saw a tweet that mentioned Hong Kong. Um one thing that's relevant but different than that point is um that uh the the app did go live in China and was uh I think after twenty four hours of being live, I Apple told Will to take it down, that, that it was going to be taken down in China. It was going to be removed from the China App Store. And my guess is that was pressure from the Chinese government on Apple. And so Apple's just going to you know, comply with that directive. Um, yeah. So I think it there is probably like government pressure on Apple, which then puts, you know, kind of uh, that policy gets enforced in a, a country. But there's, you know, there's web clients that pop up and, you know, anybody who wants can build a web client and you can run it on whatever domain you want and you can, you know, you can sideload things and do all kinds of stuff that you can do to still access the network. It's not run by, there's no like one throat to choke. So I think it's a lot, you know, not to say that you couldn't have a great firewall type situation or there might be Mm -hmm. jurisdictional relay. It would just be more difficult. It's more difficult to censor essentially. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and and those are populations of people who may have, you know, a different experience with that concept of free speech than maybe we have. So it might be a harder pitch, you know, to explain to my brother or somebody why he should care because he lives in the U.S. But probably, right. you know, other other you know people living in other uh, situations may may find it more appealing early. Right. Yeah. Well, again, my devil's advocate. Yeah on this is um, I actually spoke with Brian at Coinbase about joining Coinbase back in 2013 and that was more or less my introduction to Bitcoin mm-hmm. and I went deep on it then and I, and he talked about Argentina and having lived there and the hyperinflation um, and as one of the arguments for, for why you can't only have government controlled money um, yep. and like look at these instances where the centralized powers have abused the centralized power and why you need a decentralized alternative. Um, and since then, I've spent a lot of time in Argentina, and I think the, the hyperinflation has probably gotten worse since he was there. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's at about 100% uh, inflation year over year. I was just there for a month, and there was about 10 or 15% inflation oh, a month that I was there. <laughs> like, exchange rate changed meaningfully from wow. the beginning of my trip to the end of the trip. Um, and What's interesting, actually, is that almost none of the people I've met in Argentina know anything about Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we are now in 2023. Um, yep. So Bitcoin is 10 to 15 years old, and it still hasn't happened. And people, Argentinians, definitely don't believe that the Argentinian pesos are going to be worth anything mm-hmm. uh, in the future. They don't. They don't save in that. They, to the extent that they save, they they try to find ways to save in dollars. Um, I met people who are like hiding a hundred dollar bill in the the sockets of their house in case the shit hits the fan and they need the hundred dollar bill to to get out or something. Um, and so yeah, when I look at some of these things, like they haven't actually played out yet. Mm-hmm. And yep. not to get into a whole crypto conversation, like obviously it might it 
maybe it'll happen five years from now. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, maybe with maybe with crypto, it's an issue of like ETH use or some of these other issues, and maybe like some new cryptocurrency in the future will be the the way that people in these types of countries um, get around their own governments. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure. It's I mean, it's also yeah. possible that it's also possible that eventually the governments just find a way to crack down on it, even if it's more difficult to crack down on than yep than the predecessors. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I, I was gonna say I think one of the things I think your sort of assessment of history is I wouldn't say like I wouldn't say I fully agree that Bitcoin hasn't made progress. Like I don't I, I don't even know that you'd claim that. I think Bitcoin has made progress since your 2014 discussion with Brian, but I don't think it is, you know, you have evidence it has not become dominant in Argentina. I believe that's a very reasonable right. observation, but I think it has continued to grow in importance in various use cases in the world. I think one of the biggest challenges that it has faced is that it's uh, it's the best money technology that has ever been created, but it's not the best payments technology. And so if you can use it, like it may be tough in Argentina to even get access to hold Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to see it in day-to-day life, it's going to be because payments is working. And it Bitcoin is not a great payments technology yet. The Lightning right. Network is an early example of what great payments on top of Bitcoin might look like, but it's also saddled with lots of technical understanding and, you know, different types of, you know, different implementations that make it more challenging to use and understand. Um, but that's yeah. less of a, less of a claim that it can't get there, I think. But for it to become very visible, I think we need payments to work and we can't just rely on like value store to be the whole story. Cause if value stores, the whole story, how do you even get it? Like if you, right. you can't receive it from somebody via payments, like how do you, I mean, there's ways, but it's just not, not, yeah. I think, going to get mainstream adoption. Um, but one of the yeah. things that I was going to mention, I think that Noster and the ecosystem around it does have a lot of like philosophical underpinnings that are consistent with the way Bitcoin works and sort of the community around Bitcoin have discovered Noster kind of and care about it for similar reasons. Though it's totally unrelated, it's also ideologically very, you know, relevant. Um, but so you see a lot of experimentation with how payments could work. And I think it ends up being maybe the very best example of a payment kind of use case that is underserved or not even explored in the world. So, you know, if you, if you think about like, can you buy a coffee in San Francisco with Bitcoin? It's like, I don't know, maybe you can, but it's kind of a niche use case for now. It doesn't really matter. Like credit cards are good enough. But um, but if you have like relays that are consuming resources in storage, compute, and bandwidth, and they want to have proof of work for anti-spam. And they're not, they don't have like bank details exchanged with a client or with the end user of the client. You've got all these different servers and clients that are trying to collaborate with each other without having any kind of formalized relationships. And you don't even know what jurisdictions they live in, et cetera. Um, I think if you have a good kind of payment technology to help them coordinate, you can actually make a more efficient market around that coordination. Um, so I almost would argue that we haven't actually seen a great use case for payments technology yet 
to, or at least not to the scale that we can see with kind of some of these early experiments that are happening on Noster. Um, and and there's a, a really interesting one that I think is going to impact information quality, which is called ZAPS. You've probably not seen this because it's very, even among Noster is new, but um, a ZAP is the idea, you know, like in a, a Facebook message, you have a like button and in like Domus client, there's a reaction called a shaka, right? Which is like the the hand. Um, but a zap is a lightning payment at the note level. So at the kind of tweet equivalent. So imagine you read a tweet and you could either, you know, shaka or thumbs up it, or you could send, you know, five cents. But you already have your wallet tied into the app. So you're not like going through yeah. some weird paywall thing. You can imagine how yeah. that... You know, this sort of micropayments idea has never really made sense. But if you have a wallet already prepped and you've got value store already there, and now it's as easy as just tapping and you can transmit money free, frictionless, um, I think you actually get all kinds of new signal on anti-spam and information quality and sort of the trust graph that flows through there could, I think it can really change the way, you know, information and, you know, and search even works. So that's another area that I'm like, kind of has my spidey sense going that I'm very excited about, but <laughs> but it takes a bunch of leaps to get there. So I wouldn't expect that like, you know, all of a sudden it's, you know, it's, I mean, it's still a hypothetical future. It's not a guaranteed future, but it's one that I'm excited to, you know, see play out and hopefully help to some, to some extent. I'll just say like, uh, thanks for, thanks for coming. And that was super fun to, to get to talk to you about it. I don't know if I've yeah, really purple pilled you yet, but, uh, but we'll, <laughs> we'll keep having discussions as I'm learning and hopefully I can continue to share stuff and hear your perspective on it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'll download the, the app and I'll play. I think that would, I should probably have done that. Before the That's a good first step. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thanks for listening to my conversation with David Notchum. If you want to continue learning more about Noster, you can find the Noster Talks podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. And be sure to like, subscribe, and tap the bell icon on YouTube to get more of these discussions surfaced to you, including our weekly Noster News live stream, where we discuss everything happening in this fast-moving and emerging ecosystem. Until next time, Noster John.